You're listening to the New Century Multiverse, the Cartographer's Handbook, remastered. There was a rank due to the United States among nations which will be withheld, if not absolutely lost, by the reputation of weakness. If we desire to avoid insult, we must be able to repel it. If we desire to secure peace, one of the most powerful instruments of our rising prosperity, it must be known that we are, at all times, ready for war. George Washington Part 1. The Enemy We Face Section 1. The Creatures I will begin by extending my greetings to all peoples who are reading or hearing these words. It is my blessed privilege to have been granted the lines of communication necessary to bring them to you. What follows may change your perception of the state of our world. I apologize for its more frightening implications, but give it your full attention so that the actions of others might stimulate your own and lead to the full commitment, body and soul, which your country requires of you. For decades this nation has been gripped by fear and doubt, first with a war of brother against brother that nearly cut our homeland in two a span of the hardest of years which left families rent asunder and townships in ashes. But it was in the reunification years afterwards, when we were at our most fragile, that the blight came upon us, dividing and scattering, severing all bonds and propelling us out into the wilderness in a bid to escape the worst of it. That was the period that has truly tested America's resolve." To the American people who have not yet heard news of this, or whose understanding of the facts has been based upon a litany of rumor and speculation, the United States that existed up to a few years ago have gone through a period of social and political upheaval. It reached a point where the lines of civilized society became so strained and broken that we could no longer in all good conscience and honesty call ourselves united. Beginning in Mississippi... The eastern states fell one by one, and a period of years when this land became an ungoverned and deadly wilderness gripped the nation, as it did almost certainly across the entirety of the globe. In that time our governments, our cities, our lines of communication, our systems of law and order, even our national identity, fell almost beyond retrieval. No military appointment no uniform nor allegiance, dictated the terms of engagement. This army care not for politics. They concede no mercy and fear no reprisal. Husband, wife, and child alike have been the casualties of this war, along with livestock, peaceful sleep, and the very idea of home. But while despair creeps in and makes himself our seemingly inescapable neighbor, Despite all you may have feared, all you may have heard, all evidence to the contrary, I can assure you this, it is not the end of us. 
Due to relatively swift action and the bravery and skill of thousands of newly assigned members of the American military, Washington, the District of Columbia, was retaken in 1880. It is from here where I write this, that we will draw back all the territories to our governance and protection, purging from our houses, forests, highways, and cities, the scourge that has laid undue claim to our God-given land. President Ulysses S. Grant, in his eleventh year in office, a position secured by electoral vote in 1877, then decreed that our nation be rechristened the reunified states as a measure to bolster the hearts of the disenfranchised and as a statement of our intent with your help and that of every other citizen we shall fight and prevail to once more taste the sweet breath of freedom that is our right bear this in your mind with every word of the following that you hear the creatures who stalk this land are not the greatest threat to our fractured civilization. Lack of ability, lack of readiness, lack of cooperation, and above all things a lack of knowledge to overcome. These are the real enemy. By means of this book, I, Thomas W. Arlington, director of the newly emplaced National Intelligence Agency, hope to imbue you and every other listener with that most precious of resources, knowledge. This will be the crucible of our gathered intelligence, forsaking apocryphal rumor and superstition. We will, instead, deal only with indisputable facts. To the soldiers, both old and new, I proffer my humblest gratitude and comradeship. I myself am a veteran of the Civil War and fought at the Second Battle of Corinth, and at Fort Henry. I even survived Shiloh, though I scarcely know how, and can only say that the retaking of Washington in 1880 was, while equally bloody, a victory for all men who fought there. This is a different kind of war, one where brothers and, indeed, sisters may stand together. I can fully comprehend the magnitude of horror that you face and I would ask you to listen well to the accounts in this book. They will lend you strength and resolve in battle, and of those two precious commodities, our country needs every ounce. And to the scouts, my agents in the field, the ones reading this aloud to every group you meet, you are the key to spreading this information. It must be brokered with judiciousness and respect. Truth and clarity are the open hands we extend to a wounded nation, offering our aid, and in taking theirs we pull them back to their feet, to join us on the fields of war. Write in your journal every day, record your findings, and convey them to our information networks, the better to weave a grand and ever-changing tapestry of American life in these desperate hours, and to give us the essential understanding and overview we must have if we are to see victory. You will craft our new maps and chart these territories. This is what it truly means to be a cartographer. 
let us now sweep aside the curtain to better familiarize ourselves with what we face. Let us now fight back. It may take everything we have to give and more, but if we do not rise to this supreme challenge, then make no mistake, everything will be taken from us nonetheless. Our enemy. It is right that we begin this doctrine of survival by examining the creatures that were once men and against whom we must survive as a species. To face this foe, they must first have a name. Too many different and conflicting terms have been applied in the years since they were first encountered. With those names came supposition, superstition, and a lack of understanding. Ghoul. Wraith. Vampire. Goblin. None of these are wholly accurate, based as they are on stories that have existed in our mythology since the first tribes sat round the first fires. They are, however, all theories with a rooted basis in recorded maladies of the body and mind. I would not take it upon myself to conceive of a new word to apply to these creatures, though circumstance and rationality do in fact call for it. Instead, I will, for purposes of practicality and uniformity, afford them their Algonquin name, a word divulged to me by Cree Indians. It is a word from their culture and history, a label given to man at his most savage, mindless, and self-indulgent. Wendigo A Wendigo is the word the Indians give to one who commits the sin of cannibalism, the ingestion of human flesh, and worse, the slaughter of the owner of said flesh. It is a parable they tell themselves to ward off this abominable crime in the depths of winter or the grip of famine. Eat of another man, and you shall be cursed with unending hunger. For the duration of this book I shall use the term Wendigo in discussing these creatures, I use this label in the understanding that the legend behind it be seen for precisely what it is, a cautionary tale for times of hardship. The word itself is not a scientific explanation of the ones we now face, though I will attempt at all times to maintain that rationality. It is manifestly a symbol. You must bear this symbolism with wisdom of its meaning. These creatures are not of a mind. They have no humanity within them. They devour human flesh and live as wild beasts. They are, at their core, the darkest reflection of our base selves. It is with the human intellect they lack that we will defeat them. The body and brain of the Wendigo is something you must understand in order to triumph. Our advantage is that they do not understand us. They do not know our minds, nor would they comprehend. First and foremost, we must forget the people they were. That was another life. They are with God now. Their bodies are being inhabited, some would say by evil spirits. I believe it is a disease of the flesh that we do not yet understand. But we have seen enough good people torn asunder in attempting to reason with them to know that nothing but the twisted body of their former self remains. This is not a passing sickness, 
nor fever that can be recovered from with the Lord's mercy or passage of time. They are another being entirely now. You must put from your minds the memory of your loved ones that have been claimed. I say again, they are with God now, and it is only right that we see to it that their remains are dealt with in appropriate fashion. The Wendigo is best described as a man who behaves in the manner of a savage animal. They are often solitary hunters, akin to the puma, using their terrain to remain hidden and striking quickly. This attack often comes from an elevated position, trees and buildings proving excellent hiding places and observation points. They will watch a group of soldiers and choose the most opportune moment to strike often not revealing themselves at all, unless spotted and attacked. They are possessed of a peculiar animal cunning, as well as agility, most often associated with the great apes of Africa. Additional for 1883 Since the first publication of this guide seven months ago, new information has availed itself on this condition. It is conveyed to you now with the proviso that everything you have heard and will continue to hear is still applicable. Everything now proven to be inaccurate has been deleted. In the minority of cases, a percentage so small and insubstantial that we cannot yet quantify it, recovery is in fact possible. However, this instance often carries with it more danger than the certainty of death. An incident in Jonestown, Ohio, broke out when cartographer scouts sent in to greet a village organized a routine cleansing of the infected. A man intervened and claimed it was possible to withstand the effects of infection. When challenged on this matter, he revealed a bite wound to the arm, healed and now scarred, the infection having been overcome the previous year. The scouts in the situation followed their initial orders, and executed the man in the street. To their credit, they were attempting to avert an uprising. They were not successful. The surviving scout was able to tell us of how the townspeople turned on them, consult the separate volume on managing disputes and dissipating conflict for ways this could have been avoided. Below is an account concerning a recently recorded encounter, affected in part by the above information. Lieutenant James Buckner, Cartersville, Richmond, Virginia, September 30th, 1882. We were in the process of clearing out a small farmstead, and apprehension instilled in me the unshakable notion that we were not alone. My suspicions were confirmed during a thorough reconnaissance of the upper areas and rooftops. There was a figure crouched in the shadows by the open awning to the second level of the barn. He had likely been watching us for several minutes. The moment my scouting partner, a brawny fellow from Kentucky named Stokes, caught his eye, the hiding man pounced. It was like watching a tomcat pit its scrawny frame against a hunting mastiff, Yet, despite Stokes's bulk and strength, he was not in an advantageous position. The creature moved with swift feet and a rapacious fluidity of action. 
The struggle was equally swift, and by the time I had moved into a firing position and brought my rifle to bear, Stokes was down and bleeding from the head. The creature fixed me with fierce orange eyes and darted away behind the barn. Impulsively, rather than aiding poor Stokes, I set off on the hunt. My intention was to dispatch the creature in short order, return quickly, and set about tending to the wounded man. In a copse some hundred yards away from the farmstead, I spied the creature again, nursing a wound in its side where Stokes had planted a parting kiss with his saber. It crouched low, skin browned with accumulated dirt. That it had not a stitch of clothing barely occurred to me at the time. In fact, trousers and a coat would have seemed comically inappropriate for one such as this. It appeared to have been born in the forest, one of many wild animals vying for its place in the food chain. I surmised, nonetheless, that it had been a former occupant of this farm. Beneath the filthy, worn, and weathered carapace of earth was a lean, muscular frame, legs tensed to spring, powerful, clawed fingers braced against the leaves at our feet. It seemed neither to notice nor to comprehend the rifle I pointed in its direction. From the base of its chest came a hoarse bark, and then came the smile of that that frightful, leering, rictus grin that fixes their features before a pounce, and the promise of inhuman ferocity that would follow. Wasting no time, I steadied myself, and in a heartbeat I planted a bullet between its eyes. At the moment my shot fired, a heavy weight collided with my frame, and the creature's mate was on me. I had neither heard nor seen her, but clawed fingers dug into my flesh, and... I felt those rightly enough. She snapped and bit at me, flinging aside my rifle. I remember punching at her, but the sharp pains and the blinding flashes mingled with her barking screams filled and overwhelmed my senses. Her teeth were at my collar, and I felt myself screaming too. And then there was an almighty tug, and I saw Stokes framed against the late afternoon sun, yanking back the female's head by the hair and putting a bullet through it. Her body crumpled onto its side and lay still. I sank back in the leaves and prayed. These events happened not one hour ago. I now sit with Stokes, my wounds dressed and sheets of clean paper, pen and ink for me to leave my account. I understand, as do all of us, the importance of passing on this information so that others may learn from it. Stokes was lucky, having not taken in any of the creature's fluids during the altercations. Neither blood nor saliva had entered his body, though his skull had sustained a mighty blow he'd not soon forget. I was not so lucky. The female's bite marks at my throat, though not mortally wounding, are... We suspect enough to pass on the infection. Maybe chance will favor me. The cleaning may have done its work. I'm perhaps one of the small number of those immune to this condition. However, I am feeling weakened and shaking. And in all likelihood, I'm not long for this world. For my part, unlike so many who had died confused and alone... I feel blessed to have the opportunity to pass on my story and communicate these thoughts to those I love. 
As the sun sinks into the west and shadows lengthen, my thoughts are with my iris, safe at our home in Silver Spring, and with all God's will, still ready to bring our child into this world. I would that he were named Jonathan, after my father, a soldier whose bravery I now struggle to match. My head throbs with pressure. I feel nausea sweep over me. I must lie down. We sit by candlelight now. Stokes has had to ask me to behave. I do not see the need. I can feel myself slipping away. My vision swims. I have no cares anymore. My man still... Stokes has not let me go. The following sentences are illegible scrawl, ending in a black pool where the inkwell was overturned. Lieutenant Buckner had fallen victim to the figurative venom of the Wendigo. Any blood, saliva, or other bodily fluids, as well as the flesh itself, carries with it this deadly affliction. Buckner was given a dignified hero's execution, and Stokes returned to his unit with the information imparted by the brave scout. The widow, Iris Buckner, did indeed bear a child, a daughter she named Joanna. When Joanna is old enough, she will read her father's last words and understand that his sacrifice was not in vain. He was posthumously awarded the Grave Duty Medal of Honor. Charcoal sketches found inside the house confirmed that the male was indeed the farmer and the female was in fact its daughter. They had apparently inhabited the wooded area for some years. You have been listening to episode one of The Cartographer's Handbook, Remastered, The Creatures, written by Alexander Shaw. Thomas W. Arlington, performed by Alex Shaw. Lieutenant James Buckner, performed by Daniel Floyd. George Washington, performed by Spencer Lieb. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Tribal March, performed by Ebony. Dreams Become Real, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, John Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, 
Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chesham. <laughs>